Good afternoon. We have been going through a series in the Gospel of Luke, and it was my intention all week to take you to Luke chapter 15. In fact, I've been very excited about the first two verses in Luke chapter 15, and I have much to say about them. But for whatever reason, God directed me this week to preach on this subject, and we are going to spend the next two weeks in the book of Job. There's a story behind it. I'll probably share it next week. But if you have a copy of the scriptures, please open to the book of Job. I am going to read the first two chapters in their entirety. Did everyone receive uh, the cup for communion? We are going to have communion. It's going to be at the end of the, the service. So set that aside for now. Get comfortable. I'm going to read these chapters. Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand And touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them, sorry, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep. And the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, 
And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We can stop right there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, You are good. And everything You do is good. And everything that You have ever done or presently are doing or will ever do is good and is worthy of our eternal praise. And so, Lord, You tell us things about the unseen world. You tell us things about our own hearts. You describe spiritual matters not only by giving us straight and clear truths, but Lord, You show us through stories, things that have happened in the past, that we may gain some kind of understanding about this unseen world. Lord, I thank You for these chapters. I thank You how You have given them to Your church to instruct the people of God so that we may be able to understand our enemy and the God who is over all things. I pray, Lord, that as we discover what Job chapters 1 and 2 is about over the next two weeks, Lord, that You would help us to be more discerning when it comes to spiritual warfare, more discerning of our adversary, more discerning about the inward thoughts even of our own hearts. I pray even now, Lord, that You would place that hedge of protection around us, that You would protect us from the enemy of our souls so that as we engage in this material, Lord, it is not snatched away but that it would sink deeply and that it would grow and bear fruit. 
Please help us, Lord, both speaker and hearer, in our weaknesses. Please, Lord, overcome those things that keep us from understanding. We pray for our children, Lord, that they would have a simple and yet profound faith in Jesus. That you would bless Richard as he instructs them in the things of God. That you would give him a kind of anointing that, that, that his words would come across in a way that they could understand and that he would go where the Spirit leads him to go in his teaching. And that you would raise up from those children a great army of those who stand with you in the coming years. Lord, we are weak and we come to your word in our weakness. And yet, Lord, you tell us that when we are weak, you are strong. And so we ask for your power this afternoon. Our good and gracious Father, help us to treasure your goodness. Help us to believe your goodness. Even in the midst of personal storms, even in the midst of national or global turbulence, whatever we may encounter, Lord, may we remember and believe Your great promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the history of the world, the greatest philosophers among men have tried to answer life's most important questions. Why are we here? What happens when we die? Why is there suffering? Why do we find so much injustice in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do evil men prosper? Isn't there a God behind the scenes who is just? An invisible hand that is guiding the events of history? If that is the case, why is there so much pain and misery in the world? The Greek philosopher Epicurus, living in 300 B.C., developed an argument against this idea that God is involved in the world. He believed in many gods, as the Greeks did, and he believed these gods were detached from human events. And he sought to prove that through a line of reasoning that continues to this day, and it's called the problem of evil. A modern version of Epicurus' argument goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, He can prevent evil. If God is all-good, He would want to prevent evil. However, evil exists. His conclusion? God's either not all-powerful or not all-good. Now, this is a line of argumentation that atheists like to use in our day. And you understand the line of thinking here. If God is good and He can stop evil, why is there evil? Maybe a better answer is that there really isn't a God at all. Now, we expect that kind of questioning from skeptics. But even believers have wrestled with questions about the goodness of God in a world full of injustice. The book of Habakkuk begins with the prophet asking similar questions. Habakkuk 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Now, I love this, and there are psalms like this, where the writer is just being honest before God. <laughs> What's going on here? Why, when I pray, things seem to get worse? 
I think we've all had moments where we reflect on evil that we have experienced or seen in the world and we wonder what God is up to. Ukraine being invaded by Russia. Millions threatened and displaced. You hear about a child who has terminal cancer. Newlyweds on their honeymoon get into a car accident and they're tragically killed. Just starting out on their new life. Or a story I read some years ago, a young woman serving refugees in the Middle East who loves Christ and is committed to the purposes of God, moves halfway around the world and is gang-raped by ISIS soldiers and left to die. Why do these things happen? Isn't God there? Kings and dictators throughout history living in palaces, dining on plates of gold, enjoying the finest things the world has to offer while millions of their own people starve to death? Is there a higher justice in the world? Is there a God of compassion who is overseeing all these events? Why does it appear so often that the wicked go unpunished and the righteous suffer? How do you answer people when they ask about this problem of evil? What does God's Word tell us about suffering and why it happens often to people who are living for God? In one of the most fascinating chapters in the entire Bible, this opening scene of the book of Job, we see a dialogue in the heavenly courtroom where God allows His righteous servant to endure great suffering at the hands of Satan. And while it doesn't answer all of our questions about suffering, it reminds us that God is directing the affairs of life and sometimes it may be true that suffering is there to demonstrate our faith or to reveal what it is we're trusting in. We're going to take two weeks in Job and focus on the two main characters of this book. One is God and one is Satan. And as we look at this, I want us to consider the reality of the spiritual war that we are in, who our enemy is, and why it is a beautiful thing to endure in your faith in the goodness of God, even if things don't make sense in the world. Now, we're introduced to Job in the beginning of this book, chapter 1, verse 1. It tells us, He is blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. Now, this is about as good a description as one would hope for. I hope when someone evaluates my life, when God evaluates my life someday, He could say something similar about me. Job is a good man as far as men go. Doesn't mean he was sinless, of course, but he was a man of faith who practiced righteousness. Now, Job is a good example of Old Testament faith. How were people saved in the Old Testament? That question comes up from time to time. They didn't know about the cross. They didn't have Jesus. They were saved the same way they're saved today. By putting their faith in God. So, he didn't know maybe that Christ was coming. He didn't know all the particulars about how God was going to redeem the world. But he believed God and he trusted in God's promises. And he is called righteous. So, he feared God. He turned away from evil. He had the blessing of God upon his life. And we see how this blessing was manifest. He had a large family. He had an abundance of resources, and he was in fellowship with his Creator. Verse 4, it says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
Now, if this were a movie, this would be the opening scene. The camera pans in, and there is a house full of joy and feasting and laughter and fellowship among the family of Job. This is a picturesque family. I mean, all of us parents want our kids to get along. These all got along. And they're adults by now, of course, but they are enjoying a feast together and There is harmony and there is unity and there is joy. And I imagine as the camera would pan around the room, there'd be an open door and you'd see outside of that open door these rolling green hills that are covered with flocks of camels and sheep and oxen and donkeys and everything a family of the ancient world would want. This is a picture of anything an ancient family could ever imagine or desire. It's a scene of joy. It's a scene of abundance. And Job is the patriarch of it all. He is called in verse 3, the greatest of all the people of the East. So in just a few short verses, we have a man who is highly esteemed in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man. And he has acquired all of this prosperity that he has by righteous means. In fact, he was so righteous, we are told in verse 5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, his children. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So, this is fascinating. Job would offer a sacrifice on behalf of each one of his children just in case they might have sinned in their hearts against God. I think it's also fascinating. This is long before the sacrificial system. This is long before the law was given to man. It's believed that Job is the oldest book. First, you know, timeline-wise, the oldest. So it's before all of these things that God commanded men as far as atonement and offering and sacrifice. And here we see Job offering these things to God. And offering them on behalf of his children. So this is the man Job. The book is named after him. We are introduced to him in the first few verses. His priorities were right. His leadership of his family was honorable. And his love for God was evident. He lived his life in relationship to God. And everything he did was in light of that relationship. So that's the prologue to the story. Job's wealth, Job's family, Job's happiness, and of course, Job's faith. But as it is with every good story, even true ones, there comes a point of conflict. There enters an antagonist, some kind of obstacle to overcome. Just as the reader is enjoying this picture of contentment and abundance and warmth and celebration of family and goodness, we are transported to a heavenly scene in verse 6. All of a sudden, we're whisked away to another realm, and this is the place of the unknown. It is the place that man has desired to look into for, for ages. It is the place where philosophers have sought to to come to understanding of things. It's the place where God rules the universe. And it says in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now the sons of God here refers to the angelic beings. They are called the B'nai Elohim, which means the sons of God. And this is a common reference to angels. Now, what's fascinating is that Satan also appears before God. 
you remember that Satan was an angel. He is an angel. He's a created being of God. But he's a fallen angel. He decided to oppose God. He decided he wanted to be like God. And he took a third of the angels along with him. So we have this antagonist who opposes God and there are a myriad of demonic beings along with him and they seek to overthrow God and they seek to thwart the purposes of God. Now, this raises a lot of questions for me. Why is Satan allowed to stand before God? I mean, he was cast out of heaven, we know that, but here he is presenting himself kind of like a heavenly roll call. The angels are called and they come before God, and here comes Satan also. Now, I do not understand why, but it is something that God wants us to be aware of. Now, we know Satan, we know this character. In the Hebrew, it's the Satan, which means the adversary. That's what the word means. The adversary could mean the accuser. This is the one who presents himself before God, and he is literally the accuser. Like, that's his identity. His very character, his very identity is one of making accusations and creating strife. He's like the prosecuting attorney in a heavenly court. And he slanders both God and man. Now, why God allows this to take place, we are not told. But this is our adversary, our enemy. Verse 7 says, The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Now, this accuser is very intelligent. Meaning he's very shrewd and he's very crafty. He's a fool, of course, meaning, biblically speaking, he is morally corrupt. He is morally bankrupt. You'd have to be a fool to try to oppose God. But he's very shrewd. He, he's not stupid. He is constantly working to confuse and distort everything that God does. And because he is the accuser, he stands before God and guess what? He accuses. Now, this is a fascinating exchange when you start to meditate on what he says here because his accusations are working in both directions, meaning he not only accuses man before God, like slandering God's people in God's presence, but he also accuses God before man, meaning he slanders God in our minds. He tries to convince mankind that God is the one who is cruel and evil and not to be trusted. That God is really the one who is evil, corrupt. Heaven is a place that is boring. Hell is going to be one raging party where all your friends are going to be. And what Satan does here is quite genius. He accuses both God and Job in his heavenly court at the same time. He accuses Job in the presence of God that Job doesn't really love God. 
But he's only serving God because God blesses him so much. And at the same time, he accuses God of not being worthy of Job's worship. He says, you protect him and you bless him, and that's the only reason he worships you. You are not worthy of worship otherwise. That's what he's saying. If you took it all away, he would never worship you. He's only doing it because you're so good to him. Now, we learn about Satan from the Bible. And when we receive Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, God gives us spiritual discernment and we read Scripture and we begin to pick up on this enemy of ours. And this enemy of ours is constantly accusing God in the minds of the people. God's not really there. God's not really good. God's not really faithful. God's not really trustworthy. His word is unreliable. And so he slanders God in the minds of the people and he never, never, never takes a day off. And he's had many centuries to perfect his art of accusation and deception. And he is much more subtle than we give him credit for. He speaks into the minds of people using their thoughts and in the first person. Meaning, he doesn't come to you and say, you should do this sin and oppose God. But he mingles in his slander with your own thoughts, disguising it how you would present your thoughts to yourself. I will never forgive him. How dare she do that to me? I'm going to make her pay. If God loved me, He wouldn't let this happen to me. And these thoughts are running through your mind and trying to persuade you over and over and over and over to believe the opposite of what God has said and the opposite of how God wants you to think. Now, some of these may be your thoughts. Some of these accusations that are running through your minds. I'm not discerning enough to figure out when it's me and when it's him but I know that He's actively doing this. He wants you to think that God's ways are foolish or impractical or outdated or that there is greater wisdom than what God has said and that you need to trust in man or you need to trust in yourself. Follow your heart. He is accusing you to God And he's accusing God to you. And he is accusing you all to one another. He accuses your spouse to you. And he accuses you to your spouse. He accuses believer against believer. He wants to separate you and divide you and embitter you. He wants you to blame everyone else for your problems. And especially... He wants you to blame God. His goal within the church is to separate us from God and from one another. He wants to convince you that you would be better off without other believers in your life. Or use some circumstance to separate you from one another or from me or from our church, or from the faith altogether. This is what He does. And He never takes a day off. I read a statistic recently that in the United States, 3,500 people a day leave their church. 3,500 a day. And I imagine that those who do so believe that they are being wise. Now, there are good reasons for leaving a church. But for every good reason, I bet there are 50 bad reasons. And I would venture to guess the majority of this 3,500 people a day are leaving for bad reasons. Thinking they are being righteous. 
thinking that this is wisdom. But in reality, they've just taken the bait. Satan loves to divide the church. Satan also loves to accuse the saints before the world. He accuses the church in the mind of unbelievers so that they will stay far away. He accuses all ministers in the minds of the people of being guilty of all of the sins that one or two corrupt few that you see on television now and again. He wants to convince everyone that that's all men who hold a Bible and stand behind a pulpit. He wants to create a distrust within people to keep them from hearing and believing the gospel. And, of course, this, this work that he's doing is not just in the church or in the minds of unbelievers. It's also everywhere in the world. He accuses one kingdom against another, one nation against another, one ruler against another. He incites one political party to despise the other and the other party to do the same. And he does not care which side you part with as long as you hate and are embittered toward the others. He wants you to focus so much on that and so much on hating others that He wants you to be absolutely consumed by it and not consumed with the things of God. He even accuses you to yourself. I'm just stupid. I'm too fat. I'm worthless. I hate myself. I want to kill myself. No one cares about me. No one would even notice if I was gone. Day and night. Imagine hearing that over and over and over and over and over and over for years, that running around in your head. And that's just his accusations among people. What's fascinating is that in the, in the first chapter, we get a glimpse of how the accuser does this before God. He's bringing accusations before God in verses 9 through 11. The only reason that Job fears you is because of what you give him. The only reason he cares about you is because you've made him wealthy. You've given him everything he could ever want. But if you took it all away, he is going to curse you to your face. We don't have a lot of examples of Satan interacting with people, but I think there's an interesting comparison here with the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, which Richard read earlier, Satan says to her, God is keeping something valuable from you. You remember? Is it true? God's not going to let you eat from this tree? What kind of God is that? God's keeping something from you. He's not, good. He's not good enough to you. And then in the case of Job, he says to God, you're too good to him. That's why he loves you. You're too good to him. You see how he plays both sides? He will tempt you and tempt you and tempt you to sin. And once you do, he will turn and pour scorn on you and condemn you. And even worse, he will discourage you from going to God for forgiveness. He wants to discourage you. I can't go to God after sinning again this way. And Satan is actively looking for people to ruin. This is back in verse 7. The Lord asked him, from where have you come? And Satan answered and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So Satan is busy seeking whom he might destroy. Now please notice his location. Satan is not in hell. This is an unbiblical idea promoted in our culture from everything from heavy metal album covers to far side cartoons. 
We do not get this idea of Satan being in hell from the Bible. He's never been there. He will be someday, but that's not what he's doing now. He is roaming the earth. And he's looking to destroy people. 1 Peter 5.8 Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, he is looking for targets. And his target, in this case, is Job. And he accuses Job of not loving God in the presence of God. And that the only reason God, he pays any attention to God at all is because God blesses him. Now, this, is a, this chapter is full of surprises because... Something really shocking happens next. You might expect God to destroy Satan. Isn't that what a good God does? But He doesn't do that. You might expect Him to banish Satan from His presence. But He doesn't do that either. You might expect Him to at least rebuke Satan and correct him and say, that is a lie. But He doesn't do that either. And this is the shocking part. Instead, God gives him what he wants. <laughs> he gives him what he wants. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, it is not my intention this week to focus on why God allowed Satan to do this. We're going to discuss that next week. But I want us to focus on what Satan does here, which is accuse, and what Satan has the ability to do, which is destroy. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all the verses again, but just to skip through them, and I'm going to highlight three ways that Satan is able to harm you. And don't worry, that wasn't all introduction, and now we're getting to the outline. This is going to be quick. Fear not. So uh, Job's sons and daughters are feasting, and God gives his consent to bring calamity into the life of Job, and we are able to see that Satan can do this. Number one, Satan has the ability to inflict human suffering by means of evil men. Satan has the ability to inflict human suffering by means of evil men. This is what we're told. Ch uh, chapter 1, verse 14. The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. Then if you drop down to verse 17, while the servant was still speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. So we see the scene in the heavenly courtroom God gives Satan permission, and how does Satan destroy Job's life? He raises up these two groups, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, to destroy Job's things. So, he influences them somehow, we're not told. But, they go after Job, and they take all of his possessions, and they kill all of his servants. And so here we see that Satan has the ability, the power, to incite groups of evil men to practice evil against other people. Now, this doesn't mean these men are innocent. The Sabaeans weren't a good group of people, and all of a sudden this power came over them, and their eyes glazed over, and they went and wanted to destroy. They were doing what was in their hearts, but somehow, Satan can move groups of people around. I don't know how. It's not described for us. But that's what we're being told here. This is one way that Satan inflicted his punishment on Job 
was through these groups. Secondly, we discover Satan has the ability to inflict human suffering by means of natural disasters. I put that in quotes because that's what we call them, natural disasters. But these are really supernatural disasters. Verse 16, While the servant was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. Drop down to verse sorry, verse 18. <clears throat> While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. The fire of God in verse 16 is most likely a reference to lightning. And so lightning, there's a lightning storm. It's killing Job's sheep, kills some of his servants. Verse 19, Satan sends a great wind, totally destroys the house, collapses, kills the, kills the men and women in there, all of them. And the response of that is that Job mourns. He's devastated, but he does not curse God. Instead, he blesses God in verse 21. So because Job responds by blessing God, Satan ups the ante. God gives him permission to attack Job the person. And then we find our third point, which is that Satan has the ability to inflict human suffering by means of Disease. So, evil men, natural disasters, and thirdly, disease. Chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, this is not chicken pox. This is not something small and irritating. These are itchy, rotten, infested sores. And we find out later in the book that they are infected with worms. So he's in such a miserable condition. I mean, the bottom of his feet. <laughs> that means like, he can't even walk. He's in such a miserable condition, he breaks pots and is scraping these legions, these wounds with, with broken pottery just to find some relief, I imagine. But the point here is that Satan has the power to do some of these things. He can influence evil men to do evil things. He can manipulate the weather apparently to create chaos and destruction. He can infect people with awful sickness and disease. He is a legitimate foe. He is a dangerous enemy. And he wants Job to curse God. But was it effective? Was it effective? Well, it worked on Job's wife. She lost her family. She lost her wealth. And now it appears she's going to lose her husband. And in the ancient Near East, if you do not have a husband or a son to take care of you, it is a death sentence. So her life is over. And in her misery, she takes the bait. And she tells Job in verse 9, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. That's what Satan wanted. That's what Satan wanted from Job. That's what Satan wants for, from all of us. His goal for us is to go to the grave, maybe not even cursing God, but living by sight and not by faith. 
He wants people to trust in what they can see and not trust in what they cannot see. He wants people to believe in themselves and not believe in the promises of God. That will do just fine for him. If that's you today, then he's totally happy with that. If he can take those who are made in God's image, made with the intention to have fellowship with God, made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and if he can steal the worship that is due God from that person and redirect them to something else, he's satisfied with that. And what he absolutely hates, what he dreads more than anything is for God to be praised, especially when He is praised in the midst of great suffering. What Satan absolutely hates is someone who is in the midst of suffering. It's been taken away from them. They've been stripped down. And their response is not to hate God or to curse God, but to praise Him and to believe Him. Satan is defeated when God is seen as all-sufficient. Satan is defeated when God is seen as supremely valuable, even when everything else of value is removed. What if Satan took away your health? What if Satan took away everything you own and everything you love and every waking moment involved your physical suffering? Would you still praise God? Would you still worship Him? Or would you blame Him and turn away from Him? Job's wife marveled at her husband. She's not amazed by his faith. She thinks it's pitiful. Do you still hold fast your integrity? She's saying, what else is there? Why are you holding on to a God who's been so cruel to you? Now, they don't see what's going on in heaven. And neither do you. You don't see what's going on in heaven when bad things happen to you. You don't see what's going on behind the scenes. You just see the outcome. But Job is wise. And Job realizes he is better with God than without God. Like Philip Yancey once said, the only thing worse than disappointment with God is disappointment without Him. Job is stripped of everything and instead of becoming hostile to God, he realizes that God is all that he has. What else can he hold on to? Is that how you are in the midst of suffering? Do you have faith so long as things are going well? Everything is going well for you? Do you have faith? But when life seems to turn on you, you turn on God? Or do you continue to praise Him? Job lost everything in a day. What was his reaction? Verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
Now Job recognized God doesn't owe him anything. Do you know that? That God doesn't owe you anything? Do you know that every pleasure you've enjoyed, every person who's ever loved you or been kind to you, any kind of prosperity you've enjoyed in this life, any kind of comfort or pleasure is all because of God's kindness to you? But it's not promised to you. It's not guaranteed to you. It's not your right. It's all because of His kindness. And so Job causes us to ask ourselves the question, will we continue to praise Him if it is all taken away? Or will we only love God because He's good to us? There's another servant of God in the Bible who endured great suffering. Satan was opposed to him. Different groups of men attacked him. Jew and Gentile alike. A mob was formed. The soldiers wanted to kill him. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. He was the only innocent one that ever lived. As righteous as Job was, he was not as righteous. He was not even in the same universe as far as righteousness as this servant. Jesus was the only innocent one. The perfect one. The holy one of God. The greatest injustice in the universe that ever possibly could be imagined is what happened to Jesus. And Satan was behind the scenes plotting and planning on how to destroy him. But God, but God uses the greatest tragedy, the greatest evil that the world has ever known to bring about the greatest good, which is the salvation of his people. If you received one of these, This afternoon, we gather to remember what God has done in Christ for sinners. Jesus told us, I want you to do this. I want you to come together and I want you to break bread and I want you to eat it. In memory of me, in remembrance of me, This bread represents His body broken for you. Let us partake. The Bible teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this Holy One of God, this innocent and righteous One who lived a perfect life and died in the place of sinners, shed His holy blood so that by it, we become reconciled to God. Our sins become atoned for. Jesus becomes slaughtered in our place so that we might inherit God's glory. This is the blood of Christ. Let us partake. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You today for the Lord Jesus Christ who was blameless and righteous and a perfect, holy substitute for sinners. And while Satan was at work to perform the greatest evil that has ever been performed in the history of the world, You glorified Your servant Jesus. And You raised Him from the dead. And You tell us that we too will be raised. And so we remember that sacrifice today. We worship You and thank You as a response to what You give to us in Jesus Christ. And may we live a life that is much like Your servant Job, who when all was taken from him, He still said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
In Jesus' name, amen.